Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a conservative senator has launched a petition for Aaron O'Toole's leadership to be reviewed by the party within the next six months. Is this insurrection going anywhere? Alberta has officially become the latest province to sign on to the landmark $10 a day federal child care program. Now, this has put the pressure on Ontario Premier Doug Ford to hammer out a deal for Ontario and Ottawa. What's he waiting for? And stats released yesterday by the Canadian Real Estate Association show that national home sales have already set a new annual record in 2021. Tim Hudak, the Aurea CEO, will join us to explain all of that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Aaron O'Toole continues to be in the hot seat. Questions have been asked about Aaron O'Toole's leadership of the Conservative Party ever since the federal election, which is 56 days ago now. And as Global's Dave Bowles reports, a Prairie Senator is actually acting on some of those concerns. The country needs a strong Conservative Party. We need strong leadership to unite our party. It's that claim Saskatchewan's Denise Batters seems unsure about. On behalf of Conservative activists and members from coast to coast, we started this petition because we don't want to see this party ripped apart again. Batters has launched a petition calling for a review into O'Toole's leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. She says among the issues she has with O'Toole is the loss of the most recent federal election. As leader, Mr. O'Toole has watered down and even entirely reversed our policy positions without the input of party or caucus members. Despite winning the popular vote for a second straight election, the Conservative Party lost two seats in September's election, winning 119 in Parliament. David Bowles, Global News. So is this an insurrection, as some people have characterized it, going anywhere? And for that matter, is it even legal? Uh, There's some mixed opinions on that. Joining us to talk about all of this is Andrew McDougall, Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto. Professor, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Always a pleasure to be here. When you lose, uh, nobody's happy. We know that. Any election, uh, whatever political party it might be. Uh, so you're always going to hear some grumbling. But uh, this this seems to be growing as opposed to uh, the usual grumbling that happens. It's been, as you say, 56 days now since the last election. Uh, and uh, and this petition that uh, Senator Batters is, uh, is putting out here right now, she says, is growing almost on a daily basis. Are you surprised by the movement? No, not at all. And uh, I think you hit the nail on the head right there at the beginning uh, where, you know, you said that basically if you lose an election, this kind of thing uh, is is pretty much pretty much inevitable. And to a degree, I've, it's been kind of interesting how long, uh, you know, he's been able to maintain uh, sort of the, the control of the messaging over the Conservative Party. Whenever you lose an election, this kind of thing is going to happen. You're going to have an accounting. You're going to have people that are very upset. You're going to have different factions of the party coming out and sort of accusing you of not doing enough to 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 win the election. And a lot of this, I think, is now breaking out a little bit into the open. The fact that that's happening, I don't think is at all surprising. I think, again, that, that it's inevitable. Of course, uh, you know, Senator Batters is going to say that this is growing. It's in her interest to say so. And it may very well be, but we're going to have to see whether or not uh, whether or not that's the case. Uh, uh, there's some things that we talked about during the campaign that I, I, I guess we figured, boy, that's interesting. Uh, but, you know, how much is it actually going to be a factor in the election? I mean, I think when I've talked to a lot of conservatives and some people that worked on the last election, the common theme seems to be we had this within our grasp. We were winning uh, with about 10 or 15 days to go in this election. And then poof, everything just seemed to blow up and they're blaming Aaron O'Toole. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's actually a little bit of a double-edged sword for um, for for Aaron O'Toole and for people that are trying to use it use it against him. On the one hand, I think there was that sense that you know the momentum had gone over to uh, to the conservatives, and that there were a number of polls that suggested that they were going to win, and then they saw that fall apart at the end. And so a lot of people are looking at 
uh, you know, Eric O'Toole for not being able to close the deal. But to a degree, I think it can also work a little bit in his favor. And unlike the, the election before this one, I think there's a bit of a sense that, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau did not really come out a whole lot stronger on this one. There was a lot of criticism when he called it that it was unnecessary. That message seemed to work at the beginning. You know, he was doing it during a pandemic. The liberals did not really do any better than uh, than they had before. And so, you know, even though the conservatives lost two seats, they really kind of had the same amount in the end. Um, so I think, you know, there's, I think, a little bit of a sense that, you know, there's potential here with Aaron O'Toole to maybe be able to pull this off. And I think he can sort of point to that fact that suggests that parts of his strategy are, in fact, working and that he's, you know, he deserves a second chance given the success he had early in the campaign. Now, whether or not that's going to work, uh, you know, we'll have to see. But, uh, but I think that, uh, you know, he can point to some success there at the beginning as, as a reason that he should stay on. But some of the discontents seem to be focused on the fact that, wait a second, as they started to listen to Mr. O'Toole talking uh, about some of his points as things went on, they said, that's not, that's not our platform. That's, that's not at all what we agreed to, uh, you know, vis-a-vis uh, gun control, for instance, uh, child care. I mean, those t- seem to be pivotal uh, uh, platform issues that seem to maybe change the public opinion. And a lot of conservatives are saying if he'd stuck to the guns, excuse the bad pun, uh, and just maintained the platform that we had set out for him, things would have been different. Yeah, and this is a perennial uh, division in the Conservative Party when you've got people that are a little bit further to the right, a little bit more socially conservative that argue that's really the true sort of heart of the party. And you've got people like Aaron O'Toole that are a little bit uh, closer to, you know, what is arguably the mainstream on some of these issues and want to take it a little bit to the left. And the argument here is is that if the Conservatives are going to win, they're going to have to appeal to sort of urban voters that tend to be a little bit closer on the left than, uh, than some people in sort of more rural areas. And Aaron O'Toole's pitch was, look, we have to moderate on some of these issues. Otherwise, we're never going to appeal to enough people and enough writings to be able to get us there. Uh, and, you know, if you go along with this, I'll be able to, to deliver you a government. Now, at the very beginning of that strategy, it did actually seem to have some force. It did, once again, as you pointed out, did seem to be getting him the support that he needed. And, of course, it evaporated a little bit at the end, which you know, kind of stepped, stepped on his point a little bit. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think the argument is, is, is one that he's you know, using, that you know, he's on the right course, that he can do this. But again, it's not really a, all that new of an argument for a conservative leader. I mean, you've often seen uh, conservative leaders you know, trying to navigate these issues and saying, you know, although a lot of people, for example, in the party may hold uh, you know, pro-life views, the party itself is not going to push that because it's just not going to be an electoral winner. And that can be very, very tricky for any conservative leader to manage. We certainly saw that with Andrew Scheer. Uh, where he had a lot of trouble trying to uh, pull off the same trick. And we see the same thing with Aaron O'Toole. Uh, our good friend David Aiken, uh, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global, uh, was tweeting the other day about uh, talking to some of his Tory insiders up in Ottawa and saying, yeah, we only fight among ourselves on days that end and why. So I, I mean, it probably characterizes exactly what you've just said here, Professor, that uh, there's a lot of factions involved in the Conservative Party right now and a lot of ideologies, frankly. Uh, and and I, whether it's Aaron O'Toole or Andrew Scheer or whoever may be leading the party at some point in the future, uh, it's it's a daunting task to try to bring those people together and try to find some consensus. Oh yeah, I mean, if if you're if you reach a certain age, you can certainly remember how this was a perennial problem when the Reform Party and then later the Canadian Alliance was around, where you know you had the uh, progressive conservatives and then sort of other conservative parties that were out there, and there was constant infighting between them. And the Liberals seemed to run right up the middle and be able to you know hold you know government without a whole lot of challenge. And so you know Stephen Harper's big trick was to be able to unite the right and try to get all of these factions together under one party. And that worked. He managed to, you know, after a certain number of liberal 
governments and, and years in power, he managed to, to deliver majority governments with a sort of unified conservative party. But those factions are all still there to a degree, and they're not going anywhere. And so whether it's Aaron O'Toole or another leader, they're going to have to be able to figure out how they're going to balance everybody's interests in a way that's going to bring them success. Is there a concern here in with, in conservative, and I mean small-c conservative circles here, about another repeat of, of the Reform Party? We know that there are already a couple of parties that are, are springing up in, in the western provinces, about Alberta and Saskatchewan particularly. Uh, Jay Hill, former reformer, actually, is, is, is I think, leading the charge on one of them. Uh, they're not there yet, but isn't, that's really kind of what started the Reform Party, wasn't it? The, uh, an extreme wing of the party simply saying, you, you don't represent us anymore. Is that, is that happening again? Well, I think a lot of people were watching uh, the People's Party under Maxim Barron yeah. to find out whether or not that was happening. I mean, that was by far one of the biggest stories of the last election. And so as Aaron O'Toole was going a little bit to the left, everybody was sort of keeping their eyes on his right to find out whether or not sort of this, you know, more conservative, but also sort of tying it into sort of the anti-vaccine, anti-mask, anti-lockdown crowd was going to be able to sort of eat away at some of the uh, some of the votes that he had there. So that's also a concern. That they're gonna, that they're sort of thinking about. Now, in the end, I don't think uh, the People's Party really proved to be quite uh, as much of a threat as you know. At certain points, you know, people thought maybe it would. I mean, at, at one point, there were some polls suggesting it was getting into the teens and possibly even sort of rivaling the NDP in terms of its success, and that didn't really sort of pan out. But that's definitely something that they're aware of, and they know that you know if they go too far to the right uh, or to the left, uh, you know, it opens up a space on their right that uh, that maybe make us trouble for them. Well, and, and as you say, there are a couple of different answers on that, whether it's going to be uh, Bernier or, or some of the other things that are happening in the West right now. I want to get into the logistics here, which I know it can be awfully boring to people, but you, when you look at the party charter here, the conservative charter, uh, they, according to the party president, they can't even do this, uh, that the next leadership review is until 2023. Uh, and the only reason you can do something before that uh, is the, uh, the death of the leader, the retirement of the leader, or the resignation of the leader. Uh, or if more than 50% of the delegates at a national convention vote in favor of selecting. Well, there isn't going to be a convention for the next two years. Uh, so is this an exercise in futility for these people that are disgruntled? Yeah, I, I'm not a precise expert on the ins and outs of the Conservative Party's rules, so I don't want to go too, too far on this one. Yeah. But that is the argument that the party is making, which is that this is offside and it's not being done through through correct channels. I don't think that's necessarily really uh, the point, uh, you know, um, even whether or not it is or, or is not, I think... Uh, what Senator Batters is trying to do is to generate the sense that you know even, there's no point in waiting all the way through to to 2023 if there's not enough support there and he's not effective in leading his caucus it makes much more sense for him to leave now and to find somebody who can so that you know there's enough time to prepare and to to get ready for the the next election essentially sort of creating a floodgate effect where you know if if too many people start coming out and it looks unmanageable then Aaron O'Toole will have no no choice but to go but that's definitely going to be one sort of uh, tactic that the party is going to use to try to shut this down, which is to say, look, it's simply offside. You know, this is not a legal way of proceeding. Uh, Senator Batters is, is acting in, in bad faith, and that nobody should uh, should pay attention to this initiative. Uh, historically, of course, Senator Batters, well, as appointed by Stephen Harper, of course, uh, when he was in power, uh, apparently she's a good friend of Andrew Shears, and apparently in the last leadership that, uh, that Aaron O'Toole won, she supported Peter McKay. So uh, there may just be a little bit of a political uh, support and a lack of support, I guess, for Aaron O'Toole that, that might be at play here, I would think. Well, this is the kind of, uh, you know, inside Ottawa speculation, yeah. I think, that everybody likes to to engage. I mean, the exact motives, I think, uh, here are always going to be a little bit of opaque for those of us that are not uh, actually playing the game. But it wouldn't surprise me, of course, if uh, if he wasn't a huge uh, O'Toole fan. 
as the party president said, every day we're fighting among ourselves is a good day for the liberals, uh, because obviously the focus is going to be on what's going on in the conservative party right now. So you wonder just how strong the voice is going to be to say, okay, we got to get under the same tent here, uh, even if we can disagree. How much of a role should Aaron O'Toole play in that, or does he step aside because he's the focus of the discontent? Uh, he's certainly good. I mean, he's the focus at this point, and, and the next it is a minority parliament, so we're never really sure know when the next election is going to be but there's a little bit of a breathing room here and i mean again just sort of coming back to how we started this off i mean this kind of uh this kind of thing this kind of infighting i think is inevitable after uh after an election loss you know it, it's the kind of thing that he, you know he's going to erin o'toole is going to have to deal with sort of sooner rather than later um whether or not he's doing it publicly he certainly has to do it privately which is to go around and to explain what happened what he thinks he can do to fix it and to explain why he's the best person for this job, whether or not we were seeing this in the media now or not, that would still be his top priority. So I think he's going to definitely be out there. Uh, you know, he's going to be putting his, his best foot forward, and he's going to be trying to control the narrative as best he can to say, look, you know, we came very close in the last election. I think the next time around, we've learned a lot from that, and we're going to be able to, uh, to pull this off. Uh, for right now, uh, you know, he's going to say, I'm the best person for the job. From a historical perspective here, Professor, how difficult is it going to be for O'Toole to get uh, the control of the party once again? If, if you haven't had it, can you do that? I mean, we, we knew from day one that Stephen Harper was in charge, of, and, and there were some dissenters there, too, and they didn't make much noise after a while because they just got drowned out uh, by, by Mr. Harper and his team and said, look, I'm, I'm the person here. John Cretchen was the same way. Whether you liked him or didn't like him or agreed or disagreed with him, you knew he was in charge. Uh, O'Toole seems to to have people going off in different directions right now. Uh, can you can you reverse that, or is that just the way it's going to be with him? Uh, well, it's always more difficult if you haven't won the election or you're in the opposition. And mm-hmm. I mean, certainly there were people when uh, you know Justin Trudeau had not yet won his first election that you know argued he wasn't up to the job, that you know he wasn't the person that was going to be able to pull this off, and a lot of that you know all went away after he sort of pulled off his first uh, you know election victory. Um, I think it's going to be the challenge is a little bit more difficult for uh, the leader of the conservatives than it is for a party, for example, like the NDP or or others, which you know would love to be able to win, but the expect you know if they they have never won historically, right? So it would be you know a phenomenal success for the federal NDP, for example, to win. So the election losses maybe not quite uh, as big of a surprise. The conservatives, on the other hand, are sort of the government in waiting. Historically, they're the ones that Canadians kind of look to. So. There's going to be, I think, a little bit more pressure on him uh, to explain, you know, why he couldn't win after the, you know, the liberals have already now been in power since 2015, uh, you know, about what his plan is going forward and why really he is the best person uh, for this job. And if they come to the conclusion that he's not, uh, then it's going to become increasingly impossible for him to hold the job. I guess uh, just to, to wrap this up and go back to your, one of your original points here, but, uh, you know, <laughs> losing creates this sort of dissension anyway. Uh, when uh, Paul Martin uh, elect, was elected uh, with the minority government uh, after succeeding Jean Chrétien, uh, Stephen Harper came second. And uh, there were calls then for the Conservatives to say, okay, you're out, Mr. Harper, You've, you had your shot. Uh, so, uh, like you say, losing creates all sorts of consternation like this, too. So, uh, And he was able to wrestle control of the party and, of course, ended up winning the next election. So uh, who knows if history is going to repeat itself. Uh, we'll watch this uh, with great interest to see how it develops. Always great to get your perspective on this, Professor. Thanks so much for the time today. Always great to be on. Thank you. Take care. Professor Andrew McDougall, uh, Poli Sci at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. During the federal election campaign some uh, 56 days ago, and well, the days and weeks leading up to the election, of course, 
Uh, child care was a key issue right across the country. We know that. And uh, many people and many of the pundits will actually tell you it may have actually been one of the deciding factors in uh, the Trudeau government getting reelected uh, because of, uh, of their stand on the policy vis-a-vis the, the conservative stand, Aaron O'Toole's stand on that. But it was incumbent upon, of course, the other provinces signing on. And, uh, well, there was some considered uh, to be some some problematic roadblocks here, uh, one of them being Alberta, one of them being Ontario, one of them being New Brunswick, who had not yet signed on. Well, yesterday, uh, one of those problems was solved. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Alberta Premier Jason Kenney announced a child care deal uh, during an event in Edmonton yesterday. Trudeau says the pandemic highlighted why child care is so important for this economy. Parents in Edmonton and across Alberta, you get why affordable child care matters. These past year and a half has illustrated the challenges that families face uh, and the need for child care. So, uh, which leads to the question a lot of us are asking these days. Uh, okay, Doug Ford, what's the problem? What's holding this thing up? Uh, to talk about uh, yesterday's announcement and, of course, what's going to happen going forward, especially in Ontario, uh, please to welcome back to the program the, uh, the Federal Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. She is the Member of Parliament for Burlington, of course, uh, Karina Gould. Minister, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you back today. Oh, happy to be here, Bill. It's a great, great day. Uh, first and <laughs> foremost, congratulations on the announcement yesterday. I got to tell you, nobody saw that coming. Um, uh, Mr. Kenny and, and the Prime Minister, of course, have, uh, shall we say, been at loggerheads for an awful lot of things, and he's been very uh, critical of the child care program. Uh, I, I don't know what kind of magic happened here to make this thing happen, but that was a, a big move by the, the government yesterday. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was it was a really good day. And uh, you're right. Um, there are several points of difference between uh, the Premier of Alberta and then the Prime Minister of Canada. But, um, you know, Minister Schultz and I, uh, she's the Minister for Children out in Alberta, uh, you know, pretty much the day after I was appointed, started getting on the phone and started working through and hashing out what an agreement would look like between Alberta and Canada. And, um, you know, it's been a, a, a crazy two weeks, if you will, but um, there was significant political will on both sides. And uh, it culminated in what was a, a really fantastic announcement for Alberta families yesterday in Edmonton. Well, as one of my colleagues tweeted after your announcement yesterday, they said, like, if they can cut a deal with Alberta, uh, they can do something with Ontario. And I'm, I'm not so sure. Uh, I've got a, a copy of the letter, Minister, that, uh, that uh, Stephen Lecce and, uh, and uh, Mr. Bethlenfalvi, the finance minister, sent to, to you and Christy Freeland yesterday, uh, basically outlining uh, what they say is their platform and their policy and their, their way ahead on this. Uh, there's a lot of platitudes in here, not too much in the way of direction. Uh, and I'm not going to ask you to campaign or to actually do the negotiations here in the public because I know you, you don't want to do that, and I, I, yeah. I, I get that. Uh, but there's one line that jumps out at me, sir, because it kind of indicates exactly where Doug Ford seems to be coming on this. Ontario is home to approximately 38% of the country's childcare uh, aged children, and our childcare system is large and complex. The insinuation there, and I think the Premier hinted at this, is, uh, well, we want 38% of the funding uh, that, that the government's got on the table, which seems and, and to you me know to be rather... They, that's exactly what they're getting. <laughs> so um, so it's, um, it's, a bit, it's a bit funny, to be honest, because, um, you know, there's $27.2 billion on the table. Um, you're absolutely correct, and the Premier is correct. They have 37.8% of the 0 to 12 population, and uh, there is $10.2 billion, which is exactly 37.8% of the total funding on offer for Ontario. So, um, you know, the, the math adds up and uh, it, it's based on a formula that uh, we have used for every single province and territory and Ontario is no different. 
uh, they're talking about uh, some sustainability here, which I know you talked about when when uh, you took over the portfolio here. I, I, they seem to be thinking that there's a sunset clause uh, on the deal that you've offered to the other provinces. I haven't seen that. I, I don't know where that's coming from. Uh, honestly, I, I couldn't tell you either because there is not. Um, and, uh, you know, as I've explained to, uh, to Ontario, um, we're signing five-year agreements because, you know, this is a new policy, but there's... There's funding in the fiscal framework federally in the long term. So there's there's no sunset here, but it's also, you know, prudent for us to do a five-year plan and then come back to the table, see how it went, what objectives did we meet, what do we maybe need to pivot and work on this together. I mean, we're we're building a whole new aspect of our social system right now, and, and we want to get this right. And I have to say that you know, we now have nine provinces and territories that have signed on. Um, not one of them has uh, raised these issues other than Ontario. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure what they're waiting for. And, um, you know, as Premier Kenny said yesterday when, when he was, you know, asked about, you know, why he, why he made this agreement, he said, I'm not going to leave $3.8 billion on the table for Alberta families. And at this point, um, Ontario is leaving $10.2 billion on the table for Ontario families. Like in Alberta, as of January 1st, they're going to reduce childcare fees by 50% for all regulated spaces. That's huge. That's in like six weeks. Parents are going to see a real tangible benefit um, and, you know, impact in their lives. It's, it's so important. Um, and, you know, we could see the same kind of thing in Ontario um, if, if Ontario, you know, came to the table. And by the way, to your point, uh, and this is one of the things I, I jumped into my mind when I was reading the letter from from Minister Lecce and Minister Bethenfavi, uh, you know, suggesting that that they want long term funding. Uh, you're doing it in five year increments, which is not unusual in, in any policy. Any future government can overturn any government policy. I mean, that that happens. That's a reality. You may not like it, uh, but it can happen down the road, and we've seen that happen in, in politics. No matter who's in charge. Uh, there's always going to be a reassessment of this. So, I mean, if they're looking for uh, something sacrosanct to say this is never going to be touched, I, I don't know that you can do that. Uh, and I don't think any future government would want that to happen. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I I, it, it just seems to be a, a, it seems to, to be a moot point. You know, keep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, but I am I am also going to be introducing legislation on child care. Right. And so that's going to give an added, you know, stickiness and make it harder for a future say conservative government because the conservatives campaigned on on tearing up these agreements in the last election um, from from doing just that. So you know we I, I think it would be very difficult for a future um, particularly conservative government to turn around to families across the country and say, oh sorry, you know we're going to increase your your childcare fees again. Um, I think that, I don't think that would be a smart political move. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're also very aware that that's a possibility. And so that's why part of what the prime minister is asking me to do is not just sign these agreements, but also to introduce legislation um, to do what we can to, to protect that for families for generations to come. Uh, there's a part in the Toronto Star I wanted you to comment on. I'm sure you've read this. Uh, senior provincial government officials say uh, that uh, Ottawa's current offer is only $10.2 billion dollars. Uh, which would get Ontario's regulated child care only $21 a day uh, by the fifth year of the agreement. That, that's not, of course, the $10 that you've promised. Uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago, Minister, that you're offering the same formula to everybody. I, 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 I don't know where they're getting their numbers from, but could you comment on, on that report? It's, and it's not a report. It's, it's Rob Benzie, of course, from the Star that wrote this, but he's basing this on a quote from a senior provincial uh, official in the government, uh, in the Ford government. Yeah, so look, I mean, we haven't received any numbers from Ontario, so I, 
I don't know what the numbers are based on. I mean, what I can say is that we sent term sheets to every province and territory seven months ago. And we said, this is the amount of money we're offering you. These are the objectives that we have, right? And within those, it's uh, 50% reduction in 2022 of fees. It's getting to $10 a day on average in the next five years. And it's um, increasing uh, the number of spaces in regulated care, as well as workforce development and salary supports for our ECEs to meet that demand and to ensure the quality for our children. Um, and so we sent that out. And then we asked all of the provinces and territories to send us back an action plan saying, OK, with this amount of money, what can you do? And each province and territory sent back an action plan based on their unique circumstances. So what I can say is that not any deal is alike, but they all have similar objectives, right? And so we're, we're waiting for Ontario to do that. So $10.2 billion is on the table. It's available to help Ontario families today. Uh, we just need a dance partner to work with. Uh, well, you stand in line, I guess, if you're waiting for the government to give us some details on some of this stuff. I mean, uh, we, we, you know, been, uh, Mr. Bethlen Falvey, of course, announced his financial statement update a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, as you know, they talked about a billion dollars over five years of their money to create 30,000 new childcare spaces in Ontario. They didn't say how they're going to do it. Uh, this is the second time they've made an announcement about creating spaces, and they still haven't said how it's going to happen. Uh, so I can understand your frustration. Uh, you need some details on this. I think we all need some details on this because that seemed to be one of the shortcomings of, of previous attempts at this deal, uh, was it's one thing to say, here's the funding. Uh, but most of the time I hear from parents, and I know you did too, Minister, saying, well, <laughs> that's great, but I can't find a space anywhere. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to do about that? And that, that's what I know from reading the legislation. One of the key parts of this is creating new spaces. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if we look at Alberta's deal yesterday, I mean, that was, uh, we announced for the creation of 42,500 new spaces, right? That's part of, of what we're doing. So it, it really is. And, and just to give you a sense, um, Bill, like when we talk about an action plan, like it's not, it's not a page of, of, of bullet points. It's, it's 18 pages of detailed plans, timelines, how they're going to do it. We strike an implementation committee with each province to work with them, to support them, because this is a, this is a big, big endeavor, right? Um, and so, you know, that's, we, we're so keen. We want to do this in Ontario. I mean, it's going to make such a big difference for families. It's, it's going to be transformative for, for our economy. Like, you know, one of the points that, that I, I just love so much is that when Quebec introduced universal daycare, affordable daycare in 1998, they went from having the lowest female workforce participation in the country to having the highest female workforce participation in the country. Like this is, this is a no brainer for our kids, for our families and for our economy. And, you know, we've got $10.2 billion on the table, um, you know, of federal money. We're not asking the provinces to put anything in. We're saying here is money to help your families. Let's just work together to make this happen. Yeah, and I know I'm going back to the letter from uh, from Minister Lecce and Minister Bethlen Falvey. Uh, they, they talk about this. This seems to be what they think is their game plan. They've list three points, as you've seen. Uh, sustainability, flexibility, and support for all families. Those are platitudes. That's not really a game plan. So I, I, I don't know really where they're coming from on this, but I do want to, in our time uh, remaining here, uh, get into some of the nuts and bolts of this. And I know uh, the Prime Minister touched on this yesterday uh, when he was out in Edmonton uh, with uh, the Premier uh, talking about the deal that, uh, that you've struck with Alberta. 
uh, the importance of this program heading into the economic recovery. You know, we've talked at great length, and you and I have had this discussion, Minister, about the she session and the impact mm-hmm. that the, the recovery, well, not just that, but of course the lockdowns have had on, on a number of women in the workforce. And, uh, you know, as, as many of them have told us on this program, if we don't have daycare, we're not going back to work. And what's that going to yeah. do to the recovery? Yeah, totally. Totally. And and think about it. Like, I mean, so I, I have a child in child care, right? My son is three and a half. Um, you know, I pay the average cost of, you know, about $1,300 a month um, in daycare. Uh, you know, if there's a 50% reduction, all of a sudden, you know, an average family in Burlington, Hamilton, uh, southwestern Ontario that's paying, you know, twelve to fifteen hundred dollars a month is going to be seeing six to seven hundred and fifty dollars in savings a month, right? Like that is a huge impact for families. That that makes such a difference to them and what they're able to do and what they're able to provide for their families. Having a kid, in, and, and for some families, that's going to make the difference between saying, okay, yeah, I can go back to work or I can't. I'm going to have another child because I can afford it now. You know, the, the impacts and the reverberations are, are so big and they're so meaningful. And, you know, you mentioned the She Session. Like, women have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, either because they work in industries and sectors that have been hardest hit and the longest to recover, in addition to also having the additional burden of caring for a young child at home because daycares or schools were closed or because, you know, they have a a runny nose and they have to stay home for a couple of days while they're waiting for test results. Like this has been a huge impact on parents, but particularly on women. And the pandemic made us finally aware broadly as a society, I mean, the women's movement has known this for 50 years, but, you know, broadly as a society, how important childcare is to our economy. Um, and so this, this is going to make such a difference. And whether you're a parent or a business owner who employs parents, um, you know that, that this is just going to have such a huge impact on, on our economy. There are, are some other holdouts on this right now, the province of New Brunswick, uh, the Yukon and, and the territories. Are negotiations ongoing there, Minister? Are you are you further along the road there? Have you started those discussions about game plans with those t- the areas? Yeah, we're having really um, good conversations with New Brunswick um, and the Northwest Territories. Uh, Nunavut just had a territorial election on October 25th, so I'm just waiting for uh, their new minister to, to be appointed. But um, when it comes to the Northwest Territories in Nunavut, um, they're, they're actually really excited about it. It's just a matter of, you know, it, it's a bit more complicated in the North because um, of different requirements, but they're fully at the table and those conversations are, are happening. And with New Brunswick, we're having really good conversations with officials. Look, with Ontario, um, I welcome the letter from Minister Lecce. I'm, I'm glad uh, to start having those conversations. Um, and I hope, um, you know, I know my officials will be reaching out um, because we're keen. We, we want to get this done. So, you know, my hope is that we're going to have a truly Canada-wide early learning and child care system with every province and territory signed on. Um, with Alberta signing on yesterday, that means 60% of um, Canadian kids are are covered now across the country. And so we want to get that to 100%. Are you confident that's going to happen? I mean, you, you, 
it, it, it sounds just in reading the letter from Minister Lecce that, that they're not quite out of the starting blocks yet, let alone uh, getting into the race here. Uh, and, and there's some, some work and some serious negotiations that have to happen. Uh, are you confident that, that that can be accelerated to try to catch up with the other provinces? Hey, look, uh, we negotiated with Alberta in just over two weeks, what I think is a really good agreement uh, for Alberta families. And so if where there's a will, there is a way. There's absolutely political will on, on my side. And so I am excited to get down to work with Ontario because I want to be able to deliver this for families right across our province. Well, as I mentioned in our opening comments here and in, in my commentary at 8.10 this morning on CHML, uh, it's incumbent upon the government to do this. I mean, you're, you've, you've got a lot of political experience here, Minister. You know the, the reality here. There's a provincial election in the spring, uh, in early June here in the province of Ontario. Uh, and I, I, whether you want to see you know, Doug Ford get reelected or not, the fact of the matter is, is we're the only province in the, in the confederation here that's not involved in this daycare program by then. Uh, there's going to be a political price to pay. So I would think it would behoove him uh, to get down at the table and to, and to try to hammer out a deal here. You know, I I just want to reiterate, there's $10.2 billion that is on the table right now for families in Ontario. And I think as Premier Kenny put it, you know, perfectly yesterday, he wasn't going to leave that money at the $3.8 billion on the table that could go towards helping uh, families in Alberta. And, you know, I think it's a shame um, if the province wants to leave that on the table because they could be using that right now. They could have been using it seven months ago uh, to help with the high cost of daycare. And so let's get going on these negotiations because, you know, we put it we put it there for a reason because we really want to, you know, help families with the high cost of daycare and to make sure that we're, you know, getting our economy recovered. That, you know, for me, it really is a no brainer. And so... I'm there, I'm ready, I'm willing, and uh, I want to get this done. Well, as we saw yesterday in Edmonton, uh, we, we talked about some of the uh, uh, acrimonious attitudes about, uh, you know, the Premier of Alberta and, and the Prime Minister and your boss. Uh, there was no love in there yesterday, that's for sure. I mean, there were no <laughs> hugs and singing kumbaya, but uh, as you say, the, the Premier simply said, look, it, uh, you know, it'd be crazy not to do this. And uh, if that can happen, then I think obviously the Premier here in this province has to understand that there's a necessity for this to happen too. I, I wish you good luck with this, and, and here's hoping for everybody who's going to be involved in this here in the province of Ontario uh, that this gets done uh, real quickly. Thanks so, so much for the time. We'll stay in touch as uh, this evolves over hopefully the next couple of days, and hopefully Absolutely. we can talk about a successful enterprise then, Minister. Oh, I'm looking forward to that, Bill. Thank you so much. Thank you for the time today. That's uh, Karina Gold, the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, uh, waiting for the province of Ontario to come to the table with their plan. Uh, everybody else except from uh, New Brunswick, of course, as she mentioned, and the Yukon uh, and the territory. Uh, but they've that's only logistics. Uh, so, you know, Ontario, come on, get your act together here. There are so many families that are waiting for this to happen. And we got the message loud and clear during the last federal election. This national daycare program is a necessity, and especially here in Ontario. Um, you wonder why the Liberals did so well in the election in southern Ontario and in the, in the key urban areas and the big cities here in Ontario because of this promise. Let's go, guys. Let's get on board here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about the housing situation, uh, is, well, it's been an ongoing situation for well, more than a couple of years now. Uh, we've seen it ebb and flow, and certainly the pandemic has had an impact on this, and affordability becomes a key issue. Uh, the federal government is aware of this, and uh, the provincial governments have talked about this for the longest while. Not so sure that any of the policies that they've enacted so far 
have had much to do with it. But uh, as our next guest has told us, uh, local municipalities and local governments uh, have a role to play in what's going on here, too. Well, some national stats have come out here, too, uh, from the Canadian Association of Realtors, uh, which indicate that uh, this market is not cooling off anytime soon. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Tim Hudak. Tim is the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate uh, Corporation uh, and uh, a former Conservative Party leader, of course. Uh, Tim, great to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days. I'm doing fine, uh, Bill. Thanks for all the, the coverage that you're giving to home ownership and the importance of it, both in Hamilton and, and nationally. It's a pleasure to be back on. Well, affordability is a big key of it. And I, I know you're aware of what's going on right across the province, Tim, and you know that there's a big debate going on in the Hamilton area right now about urban boundary expansion or not to uh, what kind of housing and uh, should be built and, and whether or not it's actually uh, going to be affordable and whether or not people are actually going to do this. So uh, all of all of which I know you've discussed uh, and, and debated with other municipalities as well as this one. And uh, unfortunately, I, I can tell you that it, it's it's evolved now into this situation where a lot of people are characterizing, uh, you know, people that are developers, builders and, and realtors, for that matter, as a bunch of evil people that just want to see, you know, the environment go to hell in a handcart, which is not true at all. Uh, you're looking for balance but affordability at the same time. And it's it's a delicate balance, but it's a balance that has to be found, isn't it? No doubt about it. And and the reason why is that, that home ownership has been, you know, the central uh, cement for uh, our strong Canadian middle class. Like it's been part of the success story of our, of our country, Bill. It, every generation since, uh, since Johnny McDonald, through the Depression, even 70s and 80s, had a better shot at owning a home than the parents or their grandparents. And why is that important? Well, that's not only savings for when you retire down the road. It's been proven to be a solid investment. Plus, it's very personal. You can't raise your kids inside a bond or a stock very well. But here's what's also important for government. When you own a home, you tend to care more about your neighborhood. I changed when I bought a home. I cared more about my neighbors. I fixed the place up. Debbie and I got more involved in the community. We gave back. Children of homeowners tend to do better in school. They have better health outcomes. It has such a significant spin-off impact on a healthy society. That's why governments have always supported the principle of affordable home ownership until recently, where that upward curve started heading downhill about 2012, and it continues to slip away. The national numbers are, are interesting. Uh, national home sales rose 8.6% on a month-over-month basis uh, from October of last year. Uh, which I guess is really not surprising. I mean, this is this is not just an Ontario uh, situation, isn't it? This is this is a national circumstance. And and uh, frankly, as you told us a couple of uh, visits ago, it, what's even happening in Ontario is having an impact on other areas because people from Ontario are saying, "Look, at I can't do this anymore. I'm going to New Brunswick. I'm going to Nova Scotia. I'm going to, to Alberta." In some cases, they're looking, and 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 th- th- there are no limitations here on where they'll look. Yeah, we, we have seen a significant increase in number of people, particularly those uh, 45 and under, who are looking to move to other provinces just uh, surely based on uh, the cost of affording uh, a home. And now with work from home, they can still work out of Hamilton or Toronto, but live in a suburb of you know Moncton, New Brunswick, or Halifax, Nova Scotia. Yeah, you mentioned some stats earlier on about the market, and if people want to see more details, uh, our National Association for the Realtors is called CREA, not the country, it's actually C-R-E-A, so CREA, C-R-E-A dot C-A. You can see the latest data. And if you want local, you can use the, the Realtors of Hamilton and Burlington uh, site or Niagara, wherever you are. You get all the stats you want. But they basically paint a pretty pretty dire picture if you're a young person who, you know, went to Mac or Mohawk, you played by the rules, you got a job, maybe your family's expecting 
but you can't get in the housing market to, to save your life. You did everything you're supposed to, but when it's time to come to get the keys, it's just slipping further away. So, you know, we're putting ideas on the table, Bill, for all provincial parties and also municipalities to help save the Canadian dream of home ownership, how to build more uh, homes in urban areas as well as uh, smaller towns. We just think it builds a stronger Canada and it fulfills the, the real desires of the vast majority of Canadians that simply want to have a place to call home they can afford. Why is Ontario in such a, a unique situation here? Uh, because you're right. I mean, we've seen firsthand. I mean, we've had it within our own family experiences like that where people have had to, to move out. Uh, I mean, you know, we've got one family member actually just bought a house in Calgary. Uh, and I, I, I showed me, she showed me the pictures of it and I thought, and you only paid this for it? I mean, it's it's a nice house, a, a, a you know, a mature house in a nice and mature neighborhood in, in downtown Calgary. I, and I said, you know what, that costs probably twice, if not three times as much, if you tried to buy that in Hamilton or London, or, or God forbid you even try to get a house in Toronto these days. Why is it so difficult to, to, to be in that market and to try to realize that dream that you just talked about for families like that, young families especially? Well, there's, there's good news and there's bad news uh, behind, uh, behind that. I mean, there was the, the boomer generation that really got into homeownership. I'm part of Generation X, but now the millennials are turning into Generation Screwed quite frankly, particularly in Hamilton, where Oxford Economics found was the third most expensive jurisdiction for, uh, for housing uh, in our nation. So the good news is, while demand is up because people believe in homeownership as an investment, people are starting to get promoted. Maybe they saved up money through COVID, so they're in the market. There's parents of the millennial generation who are the wealthiest uh, generation in Canada's history, and they're trying to help uh, through the bank of mom and dad their families, their kids get into the marketplace. And of course, mortgage rates remain low. Although, as you know, Bill, and you've talked about in your show, there's going to be upward pressure now that inflation is starting to kick in. So those yeah. are all good problems to have. People want to live here. They want to buy homes. They want to move to the Hamilton area. That, that's great. The bad news is, for so many years, we were not building enough supply. The NIMBY forces kicked in, all kinds of rules, regulations, red tape, drove up the costs. We should have been building about 100,000 homes per year in our province, Bill. And we were really getting in about sixty or seventy thousand, so we've fallen behind. More buyers, more demand, not enough supply. Where do you build them? Uh, which is the debate that's going on here in Hamilton, and uh, and and I know that as as realtors, uh, the you know the organization that you represent, Tim, uh, the answer is both. You, you do infill and and you look. If in fact the infill is not going to uh, actually address every every need that's that's in this well, in this particular case, the Hamilton market. Uh, there's only so much available space, and we get that. There's probably a lot more space in other communities uh, where infill developments can happen, but is it the kind of housing that those sorts of families would actually gravitate toward? You really need a balanced approach. Uh, of course, environmentally sensitive land you know, should be preserved for future generations, for um, the environment, and for nature, but we also have to make some choices that you know, we do need to find places to build homes, and it's not just realtors who say that or or builders. I mean, we, there's nothing makes a realtor happy than turning over the keys to a, a first-time homebuyer. They'll smile. They talk about the first time they did that in their profession. But it's actually the people of Hamilton. I mean, Nick Nanos did a survey uh, recently about what's happening in the Hamilton area. And the majority of people in this survey, particularly young people, wanted to see an expansion of the urban boundary. Those that are 18 to 34, those that are desperate in the market, 51% said that. And the smallest group were opposed to it. Look, I, I know there's those forces uh, 
Bill, who don't want to build anything anywhere. They want us all living, you know, small boxes up in the sky. But that's not what most Ontarians want. They want a balanced approach that will do infills, redevelop brownfields for sure in urban areas, but also to find areas where you can expand the urban boundary, have a minimal impact on the environment, and help people find a place that they can afford. Well, and and to the, and, and I'm going to jump out on a limb here because I think that that story has to be told too. Uh, when you look at some of these developments, uh, they are uh, sensitive to environmental issues. Uh, it, it's not, as some people characterize it, where they just bulldoze over everything and say, well, okay, let's start slapping houses up. And, and I can point to the neighborhood I live in in Ancaster, and I know you, the, you know this area quite well, Tim. Uh, we're right on the, the edge of the Meadowlands here, and we're surrounded by Hamilton Conservation Lands. And as a matter of fact, right in the middle of our development is a huge marshy area that was maintained through the development of this. Yeah, there are houses here. Uh, but it's done in in concert with the conservation lands, and you know, the, respecting that. I mean, I, I, I got rabbits and deer, and and well, sometimes coyotes uh, wandering across our front lawn at night because we're right beside these areas, and uh, that's fine. That's that's nature, and and what you're talking about coexisting, uh, which can happen if it's done properly. Well, that's absolutely right. We we tend to take a very balanced approach in the province of Ontario. I mean, the Hamilton Area Conservation Authority has a strong reputation in making sure that you protect wetlands and areas of, of wildlife, certainly provincial laws and municipal rules uh, do that uh, as well. I, th- I think we actually have the right balance, uh, but for too long, you know, it, it, we went the other way with um, a lot of finger pointing and have to get a study to do this. And then the next government agency would say we need more and they'd all send you in a circle to the point where you could finally get a, a development done. But it would take 10 or 12 years. And after all that time, housing inflation would dictate that prices would be going up through the roof. In, in many areas, for example, Bill, now Hamilton's not this one, it's York region. Before you can put a spade in the ground to develop a project that's gone through all those uh, environmental hurdles, it's 125 grand. And you haven't even started building the place yet. So no wonder housing prices are out of reach. The good news is there's a lot of solutions on the table. And your listeners on CHML can go to bringaffordabilityhome.com. Again, bringaffordabilityhome.com. They can check out what the Ontario Realtors are suggesting. Very balanced, focused on first-time home buyers and move-up buyers with uh, young families, bringing in more inventory, and, and using up, for example, converting extra commercial space into residential units. Surplus government land we can move rather quickly. Uh, restoring brownfields into housing or businesses as well. There's a lot of solutions. They're just tougher to do. But my goodness, Bill, we've run out of time. Well, and you, you're touching on one of the sore points. I know you and I have talked about this going all the way back. I think when you and I were both in government, uh, Tim, uh, is if there's surplus land here, if it's school board property or whatever, we've already paid for it as taxpayers. You know, we bought that land for whatever that purpose was, or if it was a municipal building, whatever the case might be. To repurpose those, that shouldn't be on the burden of, of, of the ratepayers already. There's got to be a different accommodation made uh, to try to expedite that. And, and you know, I've talked to, to people in your association, and they say, look, we'd love to have the, house, the price of housing go down. We'd love for it to be more affordable, but we have to pay this dollar and this one, and there's this fee. We have to go to get this report. We have to go through this government agency. Then we have to pay for the land, and usually it's an inflated price in situations like that. Uh, you know, he says, it's not as if we're trying to make money hand over fist here, but the red tape and the cost of that red tape is one of the reasons that's driving the price up. Yeah, the two biggest uh, drivers of uh, housing prices are, are the red tape regulation and runaround, as you just uh, described very well, Bill, both from your experience as a radio host and on city council. And then um, secondly, it's the, the NIMBY forces that don't want to build 
a house anywhere. Let, let me give you an example. So picture a wartime bungalow in whether it's in Hamilton or Ancaster or Burlington. And, you know, in, in many cities, um, you can change that wartime bungalow, knock it down and build a three, four story monster home for one wealthy family. And that's their right. They own the property. You can do that pretty easily. But if that owner wanted to convert that space maybe into two units or a triplex, split the lot so two or three or four affordable homes could be built there, they get to run around. They have to go through a zoning process. The NIMBY forces descend. They don't want any change in the neighborhood. And then the owner says, well, the heck with it. I'm not going to do it. And who's out of luck? Those three or four young families that now don't have a place to buy. We saw that in Hamilton. I've seen it in London. I, I know our listeners down at CFPL can relate to this. Uh, because of some of the concerns with student housing and some of the pushback that they got, as you say, not in my neighborhood reaction, uh, many municipalities actually enacted bylaws, Tim, that simply said you can't do that, no more conversions, because uh, we don't want these things overrun. Well, that, that, that first of all, doesn't work because, they, you know, the student housing is still necessity and they'd have to do something like that. But it has, as you said, shut out a number of young families that could have used that kind of accommodation, even if it's on an interim basis uh, in the initial stages of getting into the home ownership game. Uh, they've got to rethink a lot of these policies. I mean, sometimes, you know, the, 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 the reaction to some of these things and the consequences of some of these actions uh, can cause more problems than, than the original problem. There's a lot of uh, moves that were made uh, when you and I were babies in the 1970s, Bill, that are like barnacles on a ship, and they have uh, driven housing costs up. They've restricted choice in the market. You and I just described one when it comes to uh, the wartime bungalow. Another one, you know, would be, providing so-called granny suites, you know, the place uh, above yeah. the garage or in the basement. A lot of municipalities really limited those. And, and the problem with that is and that means that um, the renters don't have as much choice. Instead of having a choice of almost any neighborhood um, in, in the city or the province, uh, now they're constrained to larger units. So we've said allow more secondary suites. The bonus on that, too, is that means that the homeowner can usually pay down their mortgage 20 to 25 percent faster as a result of renting out that unit. We've seen some movement from the Ford government on this. We have legislation called the More Homes, More Choice Act. We like it. But we have a lot more ideas like this to help, whether it's rental or ownership, at bringaffordabilityhome.com. We'd love to see any of the parties take them up as they head towards the June election. I, I know that some people are looking at, and you just touched on it, Tim, uh, about rentals. Uh, that maybe, maybe you know, that first home is going to be out of reach for some people, and rentals may be part of the solution. Uh, and, and that may well be and should be part of the discussion. I, I totally agree with that. Uh, but it still comes down to housing stock, doesn't it? About, you know, do you have enough places for that? And if you, we're not building enough, and we don't have enough right now for the growing population. That's absolutely true. And, you know, I'd love to see, um, as you know, in every budget, provincial or federal, there's always infrastructure funds. They say, okay, we got money for roads or transit or water and sewer. Great. What we love to see is, if, is the government say to municipalities, okay, if you're bringing along those routes more affordable homes that people can buy, you know, build up our middle class, those that want to join it, great, you move to the top of the list. But if you're saying no to anything everywhere, you're not changing your urban boundary, you're saying we don't want more people, then you fall the bottom list on those infrastructure projects. That would be a very important carrot that would reward good behavior and bring more families closer to experiencing home ownership. Are we close to that uh, point, though, Tim, where we're going to get this sense of cooperation uh, from all three levels of government to try to make this happen? Because, uh, you know, doing this individually is, is not getting it done. There's got to be a coordinated effort by all three levels. Uh, and, and I know you've talked about this for years now in your association. Uh, governments seem to be kind of 
touch we're talking around the issue right now but it's going to take a concerted effort i mean you know i know the federal government even started getting into housing conversations i guess during the last election all three parties started talking about housing affordability because uh, it's an ongoing problem but you, you've got to basically start at the top and say okay let's all three of us sit down and try to find out how this is going to work yeah this one's a, a yes and no there's some circumstances where we've seen progress another one like we've seen in hamilton where you know, it looked like they weren't going to make any changes for new homes. The minister stepped in, and hopefully there'll be a more balanced approach coming forward. The province is the one that can make the most change. And I mentioned just now one of the carrots they can use, you know, rewarding municipalities uh, who move forward on affordable homes with infrastructure funds. They also need some sticks, quite frankly. If municipalities go backwards, make housing more expensive, don't want to, you know, have the next generation live in their community but want them to move away, and the province does have tools with, like a ministerial zoning order, uh, which can override local policy processes. That, that's a, a stick that you use if you're not going in the right direction, but it certainly should be something at hand. The last thing I'll comment on here, too, is there's some exciting new technologies coming. This is really in the province's wheelhouse. It's kind of like a modern rent-to-own. So maybe it's a, a pension or patient money that will help you with the down payment for your home. As you know, Bill, it's not as much the mortgage payments that are the barrier right now. It's having the money for the down payment cash at hand. Mm-hmm. These companies help buy the home. It's kind of co-ownership. And then you pay them off over time. Either when you sell the home, they get an upside of the sale cost or some additional payments to them like rent. And then you own the home. So those new technologies work elsewhere. We'd love to see them helping first-time buyers here in the province of Ontario. By the way, one PS here, when we talk about cutting out red tape, we're not talking about trampling over environmental issues, uh, as some people have characterized it. I mean, there are there are those issues, and there are some templates that have to be in place, and those have to be enforced, and I think most governments understand that. Uh, but there's still an awful lot of bureaucratic red tape from going from one department to the other, uh, and that has to be expedited, too. Anyway, we're going to have to leave it there, Tim. We're just about out of time. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, hopefully, uh, governments are going to heed uh, the the advice that you've been giving and other agencies have been giving too uh, to try to address this and i'm sure we'll talk about this again down the road yeah you bet bill thanks for being a champion of the the canadian dream of home ownership always a pleasure to be on your show take care tim hudak uh, the ceo of the ontario realtors association the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml the bill kelly podcast is available on apple podcast google podcast or wherever you get your podcasts from you can also listen to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 chml i'm bill kelly thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast it's free so you never miss an episode and make sure that you rate and review